You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, last week we launched a mini-series within the larger set of sermons that we're working through right now in the parables of Jesus. And that little mini-series is called, Who's Your One? And part of what we're asking the Lord to do in this little season of our church's life is to lift our chins and to turn our gaze up toward the greatest and most weighty things in life. Like, where are people going to spend forever? Like, in a billion years from now, are people going to be perishing? Or are they going to be flourishing with God? to turn our gaze up toward the most important things. And um, part of what we're going to have the privilege to do in this service, and this is a unique service for us, because at the end of the service, um, you should have uh, set down on a card or been in your seat, uh, who's your one card? And we're going to take the last section of that card, um, fill that out, and then we're going to have baskets up here in the front, and we're going to have some baskets at the back there, and we're going to all bring those cards, our one, to Jesus today. It's just a way for us to, to offer that person and ourselves to God as we pursue the perishing. And so that's what's kind of coming. So I just want to get you ready for that. You can take that card, be praying over that during the service, and at the end, uh, to get ready for that moment as we collectively do that together. Okay, so with that said, let me start here. Years ago when I was in seminary, I met with a guy who was a little bit older than I was, and, uh, and this guy had a little bit of crazy to him. I don't know if you know a, a guy like that, but he had a little bit of crazy to him. But at the same time, he had a ton of zeal for Jesus. And part of how that zeal for Jesus worked out is he just talked to people about Jesus all the time. And he had story after story of the, of the Lord using him uh, to save people. Uh, and just in that saving work of the Lord. And so uh, a few years ago, he now lives a few hours away. And a couple of years ago, he called me out of the blue and said, uh, hey, I happen to be in Midlothian and I'm about to come over. I'm like, well, thanks for inviting yourself over. Just come, come right on in. I actually loved it. He came in, he hung out with us for a while. We got to catch up for a minute. And then right before he left, he took a piece of paper out of his pocket, unfolded it, And he said, Rodney, will you please read this? And I said, well, sure. And here is what I read. So picture this. I'm at the dinner table. Uh, He's across the dinner table from me. And this piece of paper is set before me. And here is what's on it. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. This a little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked want to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. 
So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the clubs where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. And here's the last sentence. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. When I looked up, this man across the dinner table was looking directly at me. And he said, may Stonegate never forget, you are a life-saving station. People are perishing, sinking forever into the waters of God's wrath. And God is giving you and the people of Stonegate the privilege of going out day and night tirelessly searching for drowning people, for perishing people. And if anyone in Midlothian ever drowns, if they ever sink into the water of God's wrath forever, may it be in spite of you doing everything possible to pull them into the safety of God's boat. That moment was such a meaningful moment for me. Um, In a lot of ways, I just received it as from the Lord. And I went to bed thinking about that last line. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people perish. And I just remember praying that night, God, may we never as a church lose our identity. We are a life-saving station, and God, will you keep us in the waters? But will you keep us searching and pursuing and seeking every perishing person? And God, by your grace, may we be used to pull people into safety. God, will you do that with us? Help us, oh God. Never forget what we are. Last week, the goal was really simple. It was to lay before you the two categories that really matter in the end. And here are the two categories. It's either lost or found. There is no third category. It's either lost or found. Everyone in your family, everyone in your neighborhood, everyone in your workplace, everyone in your class, everyone on your team, all roughly 7 billion of the people on the planet, it is either lost or or found, and those who remain in their lostness will perish forever, but those who are found will flourish with God forever. Could the stakes be any higher? Lost or found. And before these parables in Luke 15 have anything for us to do, they have something for us to see. And that something is the aching heart of Jesus for those who are perishing. The aching heart of Jesus for the lost. This passage in a lot of ways opens the door into God's heart so that we can come through the door into God's heart and explore his heart and to see his his ache for the lost. I, I said this last week, but if you were to put a billion bars of gold right there, there's a billion bars of gold. And over here, there is one lost person And then you were to look at Jesus and say, which of those two do you want? Which of those are of more value? God's heart would leap toward that one lost sheep. Would leap toward that one lost person. This is the aching 
heart of God. Church, if hell is real and terrible and eternal, and God says it's all of those things in the scriptures, if it's real, terrible, and and eternal, and if all that's keeping those that we love, all seven billion, right, of people that are lost, if the only thing keeping those people that we loved from hell is that thin line called death, that just has to do something to us, doesn't it? It has to put in us a burning ache for those who are lost, for those who are perishing. A burning ache to see lost people found. So before we move on from that, let's just revisit the question of last week. Has God given us the ache? Have we received that ache from Jesus? Is that ache in you? Is there a want in you to see lost people found? Last week, I I just had several moments of praying with people, just begging the Lord to do that in them. And, And if that's you this morning, if that ache is not there, man, let's just, before you go on this morning, just stop where you are and plead for God to give that to you. For God to to give you his heart and for you to be able to receive his aching heart for the lost. So last week was all about the ache. This week is all about the search. It's all about the pursuit. It's all, this week is about finding the lost. Don't we want to be used for that church? To see lost people found? So this week is about finding. It's about searching. And I want to allow these parables in Luke 15 to show us four things that finding requires. Four things that finding requires. If we want to be used by God in the the search and the rescue and and, and pulling people into the boat with Jesus, it's a safety. Four things that that sort of finding requires. Here's the first. These parables show us that finding requires the sovereign work of God. Finding requires the sovereign work of God. Going from lost to found is a miracle of God's grace. I want to say that again. For a person to go from lost to found, it requires a miracle of God's grace. Now, you see this alluded to in verses 3 through 5. Read along here with me. Jesus told them a parable. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, verse 5 is a picture of salvation. It's salvation in story form. Now, look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he is the shepherd, and we're supposed to see through the shepherd all the way up to God. And when he, namely God, found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So let's ask the question, what did the sheep do? So the sheep is rescued, right? He was lost and now he's found and he's brought back. What did the sheep do? Answer, the only thing he did was get lost. That's the only thing he did. Now, if we're to allow that to be our picture of salvation, we could say it this way. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes us need it. That's what we contribute. It's just the sin that puts us in the position of we're perishing, and if God doesn't do something, we're doomed. That's what we contribute. Now, let's ask this question. What did God do in verse 5? Everything. He went searching He found the the lost sheep, and then when he found it, and this is just a beautiful picture of salvation, he throws the lost sheep over his shoulders. He's doing everything needed to carry that lost sheep back home to safety. That's salvation. What, What does God do? Everything. Now, the Bible uses all sorts of pictures to describe our salvation. In this parable, in these parables in Luke 15, it's lost and found, but that's not the only picture. Another picture we see in the Bible is the the imagery of we go from dead to alive. This is the imagery that Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and God made you alive. Now, what what do dead people contribute to their resurrection? Nothing. What does a resurrection require? A miracle from God? That's a picture of our salvation. 
It requires, to go from lost to found requires a resurrection miracle. So maybe we could say it this way. And let this be a reminder for all of us as we are pursuing lost things. That finding the lost requires more than human doing. It requires the doing of God. Just consider the miracles that a person's salvation requires. If a person's ever going to be rescued, here are just a couple of the miracles it requires. First, God has to do the miracle of showing a person that they're lost. That's a miracle to see that. To see and recognize that without something happening, we are going to perish forever, that we're lost. Last week, I told the story of us losing Eva at a cross-country meet here a few weeks ago. And just the, the recap of that story is, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a couple thousand people and we all go to watch my niece in this race and we all scramble. The, the race is about to start. We get to where we can see a part of the race and we realize, oh my goodness, we have lost Eva. Parental panic kind of breaks out. It's 10 minutes of searching. Finally, I get the call from Laura. I found her. I mean, it just a party started in my, just an amazing moment there. Uh, but here was the funniest thing about the story. When uh, Laura finds Eva, Laura's like, oh my gosh, I found you. And Eva's like, mom, what's the problem? I'm not lost. I've been right here. Watch it. I'm right here at the finish line. Watch it. I'm not, I'm not lost, mom. I mean, th- that was the amazing part of the story. She didn't even know she was lost. And that is so a parable for our condition when we're born into this world. We don't see our lostness. It's a miracle of God's grace to open our eyes to see our lostness. And listen, if we're not lost, we feel no need for rescue, right? If we don't see that we're perishing, we we see no need for God's saving grace. And it is a miracle for God to reveal our lostness to us. It's also a miracle for God to open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. We come out of the womb and think of God as something small, dull, boring, not really relevant to our life. We come out of the the womb thinking like this and seeing like this. And God has to do a miracle in our lives to open up our, our eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is. This, this is conversion. This is, remember that little parable in Matthew 13 that, that Jesus uh, talks about? It's a parable about conversion. He says, um, the kingdom of God's like this. It's like a man who is digging in a field and he bumps in and finds this treasure in the field. That treasure is Jesus. All of a sudden we look down and it's the most amazing thing in the world. It's so amazing that this guy gladly goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field and get the treasure. See, that, that's what it takes for a person to go from lost to found. We have to see Jesus as the most valuable thing in the world. So valuable that we would let go of everything else so that we could have him. That requires a miracle from God. For our eyes to come open to the beauty of Jesus. So so church, let, let me just remind you, there is work for us to do in finding the lost. But God is the decisive doer. There is much we can do in finding the lost. But if God doesn't do what we can't, all of our doing will be in vain. It requires a sovereign work of God. Um, This is one of the the things I love about the way we do baptisms. All of our baptisms are telling two stories. Story one is the person being baptized. And they're the, the person in the water. And when they go down under the water and they come back up, it's the picture of God saves. Jesus makes dead things live. It's an amazing story of, of God doing that miracle. But there's another story that's being told. And that's the person doing the baptizing. We just ask the person that is being baptized to pick one person in the story, their story that God has used in the rescuing work. And that's what we're seeing in that other picture, that the person doing the baptizing, that God uses normal people like you and me, just normal, common people like you and me in his rescuing work. Isn't that amazing that God would invite us into it? It's a sovereign work of God that God uses us to do. So here's the first thing we learn. Finding requires the sovereign work of God. Here's the second thing these parables show us. 
Finding requires pursuit. Finding requires pursuit. Jesus has an ache in his heart for the lost, and that ache for the lost gets Jesus moving toward the lost, pursuing the lost, seeking the lost. Look at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and then listen to these words, and go after, go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Again, we're supposed to see through the imagery of this shepherd all the way up into the heart of God. And here's what we find about God. We have a God who goes after the lost. We have a, a God with a heart like that who, who just, his, his bend and his tilt is toward the lost. We have a God who goes after the lost. These parables are a storied presentation of Luke 19.10. When Jesus says, the son of man, me, I have come to seek and save the lost. Jesus was willing to absolutely disrupt his life as he goes looking for the lost, to, to rescue the perishing. And church, we're to be a people who receive that heart from Jesus. What we see in Jesus, that the heart of Jesus, we're meant to receive from him. We are to be a people that, that, like our God, go after the one that is lost. Just like the people in this life-saving station, with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Church, that, that's meant to be us. That, that, that's what people in a life-saving station do. That, that's the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe we could say it this way, church. If we want to be a people who find what's lost, we have to go looking. And without us going to look, th there should be no expectation that we're going to find. If we want to find what's lost, we have to go looking. Now, I want to I take a moment to give some encouragement. Because I think anytime we hear something like that, let's go looking, we, we instantly think... Um, how am I going to fit something else into my already busy life? How am I going to do that? And so I want to speak to that and just offer this sort of encouragement for you. For most of us in the room, the application is not um, adding 15 new things to your life. Do these five new things. It's not that. That's not the application for most. The application is not do something new. Rather, it's it's to insert gospel intentionality into what we're already doing. You see the difference in that? The application for most of us is not, hey, totally up into your life and, and stop doing all these things and start doing all of those things. It's probably not that. It's to insert gospel intentionality into what you are already doing. Um, seeking or pursuing, searching after the loss Think of it less as an activity that you do and an orientation for the entirety of your life. Pursuing lost things is not like a, a light switch that you turn on and now you're pursuing people and then you turn off and now you're not pursuing people. It's not like that. Pursuing the lost is more like a switch that you turn on and leave on in every moment of your life. It's the orientation of your life. You just carry that with you everywhere you go. So now, uh, when you go to the grocery store, you're seeking the lost. Uh, when you walk in your neighborhood, uh, when you're watching your kids play sport, when, when you're working, when you're in the classroom, when you're with your friends, in every moment that you're, that you're you know, experiencing in life, you're inserting gospel intentionality. You're not adding a lot of new things. You're just saturating all of what you already do with intentionality, gospel intentionality. I am leveraging every moment of my life in the pursuit. In church, God wants to give us his pursuing heart. And I want to just invite you to take a moment to ask, is that evident in my life? Do I see evidence in my life of God's pursuing heart? Is that there? There was a, a man named Charles Peace. He was a convicted criminal who eventually was executed for his crimes. And when he heard a prison chaplain talk about hell, he responded to that chaplain by saying this. He said, sir, I do not share your faith. 
But if I did, if I believed what you say you believed, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and the breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. Is that our mentality? Just the, our orientation in life? If our city was covered in broken glass, that we would crawl on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile to see one perishing person rescued. If we're going to find lost things, we have to pursue. Here's the third thing that we learn in these parables. That finding requires diligent pursuit. Not just pursuit, but a particular kind of pursuit, diligent pursuit. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek, do you see the word? Diligently until she finds it. To seek diligently. So we aren't just to pursue, but Jesus adds that word in there. We, we are to pursue or seek diligently. Now, what does the word diligent mean? If you go to Webster's Dictionary, here's what you find. That it character, it's characterized by a, by a steady, earnest, and energetic effort. That's diligence. That's what it means to be diligent in something or with something. It's characterized by a steady, earnest, and energetic effort. So to seek or to pursue something diligently means that we pursue it energetically. Like we wake up with an eagerness that maybe today God would want to amuse me in his rescuing work. May, this might be the day that he does it. So we pursue energetically. It means that we pursue earnestly. Like today people are going to die, thousands of people. And if they die in their lostness, they will perish forever. So, so God, I am re-offering my life to you in this work of rescuing the perishing. God, use me today. Use, it's earnest pursuit. And then it means that our pursuit is steady. Steady. Now, why would we need steadiness in our pursuit of the lost? Why would we need that? Well, here's one reason. Because finding what's lost can take a long time. Think of the last time you tried to find your keys, right? Finding the lost can take a while. Finding what's lost doesn't always happen in the first 30 seconds, does it? The first minute. The first five minutes. It, it can take a long time. Now, with that in mind, I want you to read again with me, verse 4 and verse 8. And I want you to, to notice one word that shows up in both of these verses. Look at verse 4. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and in the open country and go after the one that is lost? And then look at this last phrase. Until he finds it. So how long does the shepherd look? However long it takes to find it. Until he finds it. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not... Light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently how long until she finds it. Until she finds it. That's how long she looks. Now, both of, of these verses, verse 4 and verse 8, are a picture of the pursuing grace of God. If you're in Christ, you have been the recipient of God's steady, diligent pursuit of you. God has diligently chased you down. He, he came searching as long as it took to find you. He came chasing as long as it took to rescue you. That is the patience of God and the steadiness of God. He searches until we're found. Now, there is a great chance that many of us need that encouragement today. To, to receive that encouragement from the, the Lord today. Um, there was a parent who came up to me at the end of last week, and she looked at me in the eyes and said, I am just so weary of waking up every day with an ache for my daughter. 
Every day I'm waking up with this deep burden and I am just so weary in it. I, I wake up every day heartbroken for her. And gosh, I feel so tired in that. And, and here's the truth in all of our lives. We not only need a saving miracle for the person that we love that is lost, we not only need a saving miracle, we also need a sustaining miracle. A, a miracle to sustain us in the pursuit so that we can have a deep ache in our soul and along with that ache also have and keep a joyful expectancy that God is going to use us in in their rescue. We need both the saving miracle and the sustaining miracle. Uh, Think for a moment about the empty tomb of Jesus. Do you know what that empty tomb says to us in our seeking? It says to us that there is no one beyond the saving grace of God. You don't have a single friend, a single person in your family, a single person in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your class. You don't know a single person beyond the saving reach of God. George Mueller is one of my favorite people in church history. And he's known for his um, life of prayer. And he prayed and pursued five men throughout his life that he was just begging the Lord to rescue. Three of those men were saved early on. So he starts praying, he starts pursuing, and three of them met Jesus early on. But two of them, it took years. He prayed for 25 years for the second two. Not, Not a day, not a week, not a year. Not five, 25 years. At one point, someone asked him, "Um, George, do you really believe that these two men are going to be saved? And he responded back by saying, do you really think God would have kept me praying for 25 years if he didn't intend to save them? Right? 25 years. Ironically, right before George Mueller died, the fourth one came to faith. The, The fourth one was found by God. And then the fifth one was found at George Mueller's funeral. Just let that encourage you. For some, it's going to be a long journey of pursuing, a long journey of of seeking. And we are to seek until they are found, trusting that if God keeps us seeking, that he is going to do that saving work in their life. Finding requires diligent pursuit. Fourthly, the fourth thing we learn is that finding requires intentional pursuit. Intentional pursuit. Look at verse 8 again. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds? I just want to point out one more observation from that verse. I just want you to notice that to find what's lost This lady uses means. She uses means. And if you want to find what's lost, yes, you have to go looking. But notice, this lady goes looking in a particular way. She turns on a light. Now, wouldn't we all agree that if you want to find something in a house that's lost, you're going to have a lot better luck if a light's on. You're going to have a lot lot better time finding what's lost if a lifetime. And look what else she does. She sweeps the house. She turns on the light and she turns over the house. And wouldn't you agree that if you want to uh, find what's under the couch, you might have a better shot if you pick up the couch and move it so you can see what's under it. Right? She's using means. She is looking in a way that leads to what's lost being found. Now, in the same way, if we want to walk with Jesus and be used by Jesus in his finding work, then we need to think about intentionality, about using means that likely lead to lost people being found. Now, we could talk about this for several sermons, but I just want to give you three means as just a way of encouraging you in your pursuit of lost things. Three means. Number one. As a church family, I just want to implore us and encourage us to be intentional with friendships. With friendships. 
heavy conversations. And by heavy, I mean important, weighty conversations, like conversations about Jesus and life and death and heaven and hell and sin and forgiveness, right? Those are big, weighty, heavy conversations. And heavy conversations happen best in the relational context called a friendship. That's where they happen best is in a context called a friendship. So if we want to see lost people saved, then we need to seek friendships with lost people. You see the means? That's one way we need to be intentional. If we want to see lost people saved, then we need to become and seek friendships with lost people. It's amazing in the New Testament, there's a lot of phrases that, you, that are used to describe the sort of life that Jesus lived. And out of all the phrases, one of my favorites is this one little phrase, that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Um, Jesus didn't view sinners as problems to be solved, as projects that he's got to kind of fix. That's not how he viewed sinners. He viewed sinners as genuine friends to be enjoyed. He was a friend of sinners. Like, even take Luke 15. Luke 15 is written in response to the religious leaders of the day looking at Jesus and the way he lived and, and saying about him, I can't believe this man Jesus. He receives sinners and he eats with them. They are accusing him of being friends with sinners. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was about. He was the friend of sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And those Jesus seeks, Jesus befriends. So let that encourage us as a church family. For those that we are seeking along with Jesus, we need to befriend. Now, think about your life for a moment, your relational life as a Lego. Okay, picture a Lego. Now, if you can picture that Lego, um, every Lego has a certain amount of slots that another Lego can be attached to. And in a lot of ways, that is a picture of your relational life. All of us are wired and made by God a little bit differently, so our relational capacity is going to be a little different. But because we're all finite, we, have, we all have a finite number of slots to plug people into in our life, relational slots uh, for, from which friendships can form. Now, this is totally normal in the life of a follower of Jesus. It's totally normal for a follower of Jesus to sort of wake up one day and look at their relational life and realize every one of their relational slots are filled by people who also follow and love Jesus. And church, I want to look at you today and say, that is a problem. That's a problem. We cannot allow every relational slot to be filled by people who know and love Jesus. Yes, we should have community in our life. But no, we've got to keep relational slots open for people who are far from God. Um, here, here's the problem with it. If all of our relational spots are taken by people who know and love Jesus. Here's one way to describe the problem. We won't see people found if we don't make room for people who are lost. That's why it's a problem. If we want to see people found, then we've got to open up room in our life for people who are lost. And if there is no room for people who are lost, we're not going to see very many people found in our life. So I want you to think about your life for a moment and ask yourself the question, do I have genuine friendships with people who are far from Jesus? If not, just allow this moment to prick your conscience and allow the Lord to begin to, to open that world of relationship up to you, to prioritize friendships with people who are far from Jesus. So be intentional with friendships. Here's the second um, way I, I want to encourage you to be intentional. Secondly, be intentional with hospitality. With hospitality. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 15, 7 where Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Isn't that an amazing verse? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Think about the ways that Jesus has welcomed you. He gave his very life to open up his life to you. That's the sort of extreme place that Jesus went to to open up his life to you. He gave his life to open up his life to you, to, to welcome you into his life and heart. And in the same way, we get to welcome others by bringing them into our lives. 
our, our hearts, our homes. We get to welcome people into our lives like that. What if everyone in our church family offered one dinner per month to Jesus? And we just said, Jesus, we're going we're gonna to use, we're going to leverage, we're going to offer this dinner to you so that we can exercise sort of the gifts around hospitality with friends that are far from you, with lost friends, with friends who are perishing if, if they're not pulled into safety. God, we're going to give one dinner a month. We're going to open up our home and invite people in one time a month in an effort to welcome people as you have welcomed us. And, and here's the thing. It's not adding something into your life. My guess is that most of you eat dinner seven days a week, right? Most of us are doing that. Every day we're eating dinner, and it's just inserting gospel intentionality into our dinner time. At one time a month we're going to do that. I had a person come up at the end of the first service and say, Man, I was so encouraged by that because it feels like something I can do. It feels like something that is like within my realm of like, yes, I can do that in the pursuit of, of lost people. Yes to that. Be intentional with hospitality. And then thirdly, be intentional in conversation. In conversation. Uh, you know the old saying, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? You might have heard of that. Here's the only problem um, with that statement. It's wrong. Right? It's just... It, it, that's like saying, hey, call me and, and use digits if necessary. Well, it's like, well, they call you. I've kind of got to know your number, punch them, and, and that's how I call. In the same way, if we're going to preach the gospel, we have to open up our mouths and talk about Jesus. That's like one of the requirements of preaching the gospel. It's talking about Jesus. If we want people to meet Jesus, we can't just live a life that shows Jesus. At some point, we have to talk about Jesus. That's like one of the necessary steps at some point in a person's journey. If they're ever going to be rescued by Jesus, we have to talk about Jesus. Now, I want to be clear on this. We cannot force people into faith. So we aren't trying to pound people or coerce people into faith. That's not the way it works. We want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And we want to be faithful in this moment with that person to what Jesus wants. Whatever that looks like, we want to be faithful to Jesus. And what Jesus most often wants in moments with people is for us to open up our mouths and to talk about the one who made our dead hearts alive, who changed us, who found us in our lostness, and who rescued us in our perishing. For us to open up our mouths and talk about Jesus, the one who's done all of that, the, the, the treasure in the field that we've given everything up for so that we can have to talk about that Jesus. Um, Jimmy um, recently got to baptize a friend of his named Matt. And just a beautiful story. And just to encourage you, we got Jimmy and Matt together and let them talk a little about that journey. What did it look like for them to come together and talk about Jesus and all of these things that, that are happening in that moment? What did that look like? So uh, we want to give you a moment to take a look up at the screen and hear a bit of that story. Hi, my name is Jimmy. And my name's Matt. And I'm here today because someone cared about me enough to pursue me and talk to me about Jesus. I met Matt... Uh, two years ago, he moved across the street from me. I think we brought, uh, our kids brought you guys yep. cookies. Brought us cookies on Easter. And we got to know them uh, over the, the next handful of months. I think we had, we scheduled some game nights uh, right. with you because we're nerds. Board games and yes. conversation. And as soon as we discovered that, that uh, Jimmy and his family were deeply involved with the church, we were like, oh great, here we go. Churchy people. Church, they're churchy. They're gonna come over and try to uh, proselytize and, and evangelize us. And uh, we were surprised to discover that that's not what happened. I would say the thing that, that made it easier to, to chat with Jimmy about these deeper topics was he and his family worked to form a, a relationship with us, a friendship with us built in uh, commonality and, and um, common interests. We started talking one night. We were just hanging out, uh, but we started en ending up talking about things like the Bible, theology, philosophy, those types of things. And that led to 
uh, really what became a weekly meeting right. uh, between me and you, uh, where we would spend anywhere between three and sometimes four and a half hours just talking about Jesus. I think people can sniff out uh, when they feel like they're being sold stuff, when they feel like they're being treated only like a box that that person needs to check off. So for us, our posture anytime we're engaging with our neighbors has been, we want to get to know them as people. You can't take the gospel over a river without a bridge. Mm. And uh, s some of that relational building helped us move the gospel over to them in a way that uh, really felt organic because it was. We had trust, uh, we had a friendship. Uh, you knew that I wasn't just trying to sell you on, right. on something. And I think that made for some really great uh, conversation. Part of what it means to be a Christian navigating in this world with your neighbors and wanting to reach them is to be sensitive to who is this unique individual person that God's put in front of me. He was coming from a really skeptical place. So the, an appropriate way to approach him uh, with, with the gospel was to deal with some objections that he was having rather than rushing straight to the data of the good news of Jesus. When you discovered, you know, kind of how my mind works, you, you realized, I need to give this guy the book, The Reason for God by mm -hmm. Timothy Keller. And as soon as you did that, that, that was the subject of our reading uh, for, for the most part. We would read that and then we would read uh, accompanying scripture. Yep. And oh, by the way, let's talk about the, the historical significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, how uh, that's not just a fairy tale, that's a true story. And, and let's mm. talk about all of that, all of that surrounding information. And all of that together just, just really had a huge impact. I remember vividly when, when Jimmy showed me in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8. Mm. And that verse right there, when I, when I, when I looked at that verse, that, that just completely blew my mind away. So yeah. I found a prayer card in my backpack mm. that I had written the week after we met you guys. It has uh, you and your family on there, and it was the card that I would just pray through every week. Uh, God, would you work in their lives? Would you open their eyes? Would you save them? Would you bring Matt to Christ? All these things. And I just happened to stumble on it uh, about a, a month ago after you'd become a Christian. I just thought, man, God is so faithful to answer his people's prayers. There is no better place to start than just pleading with God for the people in your life that you love, that you want to see know him. God is faithful and I promise he is eager to answer those prayers. Amen to that, huh? Why don't you bow with me and this is going to be the moment where we get to respond to the Lord. I want to give you just um, a moment here to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be and this is the time I want you to pull out that who's your one card. It should be in the seat that you sat on. And there's probably a couple of ways that would be um, helpful to respond this morning. Maybe some ways to respond. One is maybe you're here today and you know that um, you are not in the family of God. You're not in Christ. That if someone were to ask you the pointed question, are you lost or found? Are you in your sin or in Christ? You would say, I, I'm not in Christ. I, I am lost. I'm not found. And the most pressing question of your life, the, the biggest thing in your life, is what are you going to do with Jesus? And, and if you get that one wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right in life. And, and just think about, think about, God's care of you. If you're in the room th this morning, th that is evidence that God is pursuing you, loving you, chasing after you, that he would orchestrate literally thousands of events that had to go on to get you in the room this morning to hear us talk about Luke 15, where God is communicating his aching, loving heart for you. And he's doing all of that to to orchestrate and, and chase you down and rescue, to pull you into the boat of safety with Jesus today. And, and so if that's you, I mean, this is your time to push your life across the line with Jesus, to turn from your sin and to 
throw your life onto the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to say yes to Jesus. This is your time to do that. To, to hold up your life and to offer it to God saying that, God, I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me right with you. To go from lost to found. Perishing to, to rescued. So just there where you are in the best way you know how, call out to God. Offer your life to him. Ask him to save you. And he stands today with arms wide open and ready to do that saving work. And for the rest of us in the room, this is our time to fill out that card. And if you look at that card, it comes in three sections. And you'll see two places to fill out who's your one. The second section... That one's for you. That's meant to be a bookmark for you that you can slide into your Bible so that every time you open your Bible, you're seeing your one. And then that last section, the third section, has who's your one and your information to put down below. It says Stonegate's copy. That's the section that you're going to tear off. And then here in just a moment, you're going to come and put into the basket. And here, here are the two action steps associated with who's your one. Number one, that you'll pray, that you'll ask God to give you a one. Not 100 people, not 50, not even 10, but just one person that, that you can pursue and seek and run after. One person, so pray and get that one person from the Lord. And then here's the second ask, that you would pray and then pursue. And by pursue, we mean by the end of the year that you'll initiate a conversation about Jesus with them. Being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, whatever the Lord wants to do in that moment. But you'll initiate that conversation. And one of the things that we're praying is that, gosh, talk about these things would just dominate our church family over the next few months. Um, how things are going, what, what you're learning, how Jesus is using you. I bumped into a person on Monday who, who said, uh, I'm going to have to find a new one because my one's already been rescued by Jesus. I'm like, more of that, please. M more of that. So the goal is 100% participation. Everybody within our church family has a one. We are praying. We are pursuing. We're initiating those conversations, trusting that this moment is going to have a ripple effect into the upcoming months of hundreds and hundreds of people meeting Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, we've got four baskets up here on the front of the stage for you to come and drop your card into. And we've got two baskets at the back of the room by each of the exits that if you're in the back of the room, you can use um, those baskets. And we're trying to keep our spacing. So we're going to have two songs so that you're not in any rush. Just make sure the sort of the, the baskets are clear, all that good stuff where you can kind of keep your spacing and distance as you come up and drop your card in the basket today. Just as a way of saying, God, I'm offering myself when I put this card in the basket. I'm offering my friend, this person that I love to you, oh God. God, use me in your rescuing work. So God, will you do that? God, will you do it? God, I pray that as we are faithful to the work that you have put in front of us, that you would do all the things we can't. God, that you would do resurrection miracles. Oh God, would you? We, your people, are asking you, our God, to save, to work, to rescue. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.